0: Welcome to the Unorthodoxy Podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is episode one in my new series on the book of Exodus. I am super excited about this series. I think that the book of Exodus is one of the finest literary achievements produced by humanity. Uh, Like so many biblical stories and Doctor Who's TARDIS, its inside is bigger than its outside. It has these Incredible historical resonances, of course, but the book of Exodus is not really a history in the way that we usually think of history today. The line between fact and theological vision or pure epiphany is always um, a little bit blurry. This means that the book of Exodus ends up saying far more than mere facts would be able to do. It's certainly about what happened to one group of people at one time in history, although it's a very contested history. Uh, But it is also about what happens in every life. It's a story about what happens when a visionary leader named Moses, in dialogue with the theophany of God, finds a way for his people to get the hell out of Egypt. But it's also a story about what happens when we, in dialogue with the theophany of the divine, find a way to get the hell out of whatever horrible state of being we happen to be in. The story is probably familiar to you, um, even if only because you saw DreamWorks as Prince of Egypt when you were a kid. Or more recently, Ridley Scott's bothersome but still entertaining Exodus Gods and Kings. Or maybe you have some image in your head of Charlton Heston in a fake-looking beard in that old 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments. When I heard the Exodus story when I was a kid, I was totally fascinated. But over time, and through education And the various ups and downs of my journey of faith, which has also included more than a few intervals of faithlessness, the story became a little too familiar. And the trouble with over familiarity is that the thing that we're looking at is, in a way, too close to be seen. Perhaps we come to think that we actually understand that thing, or that we assume that we know what it's about, but the reality is, in fact, the opposite. Familiarity creates a kind of conceptual blindness. If you're so familiar with the story, you might decide that there's really nothing in it for you anymore, even when, just maybe, there's more in it for you than ever before. I love this thing that Chesterton says. He says, There's a law written in the darkest of the books of life, and it is this If you look at a thing 999 times, you are perfectly safe. If you look at it the thousandth time, you are in frightful danger. Of seeing it for the first time. So, well, I decided to look at the Exodus story for the thousandth time and I allowed myself to be in that terrible danger of seeing the story for the first time. And I hope that I do at least some justice here to my own encounters with the story's weirdness and wonder and profundity. Before I dive in though, it may help you to have a sense of my own interpretive approach here my approach is meant as i hope you will hear to take the text incredibly seriously but not incredibly literally at least not literally in the way that is it is usually understood these days as some of you will notice my interpretive approach is going to be close to that of the ancient rabbis and the early church fathers uh, the so-called patristics than to that of contemporary scholars who are fond of historical grammatical criticism Rabbinic exegesis makes use of four modes of seeing. Well, that's what I'm calling them. The first is peshat, meaning the straightforward direct surface reading of the text. And every kind of reading that we do is going to have to start with that, the kind of plain sense of what we see. The second uh, mode of seeing is known as remez, and it refers to deeper allegorical meanings beyond the surface. It also implies a kind of um, looking at sort of quoting from texts and looking at, the resonances that develop from that quotation. It's uh, more complicated than what I'm conveying right now, and I'm not going to get into the details of this. This is something that you can maybe check out if you're interested. The third mode of seeing is called dirash, which inquires into comparative meanings by looking for similar occurrences of the same idea. And the fourth uh, mode of seeing is called sod, meaning the secret or mystical meaning of the text. The patristics also made use of of um, a kind of four modes of seeing, which are known as the four senses of Scripture. And you'll notice these kind of, in a weird sort of way, align with the rabbinic uh, modes of exegesis, but not quite exactly. So I'm going to explain them separately. The first of these is the so-called literal reading. So this is quite similar to Peshat. Uh, this is not literal in the modernist sense, even though it tries to figure out the meaning of what the author said and what actually happened. If you ever have a chance to read uh, St. Augustine's literal reading of Genesis, you'll realize that it's it's certainly not literal in the sort of six-day creationist sense. The second uh, sense of Scripture is the so-called typological sense, um, which looks for resonances in the text that foreshadow the life and teachings and ministry, I guess, of of Jesus. The third is the moral sense of Scripture, which looks for, well, the moral meaning of the text. So, it's looking at what the text is trying to say to us about how we should live. And then the fourth sense of Scripture is the anagogical or mystical sense of Scripture. And that kind of aligns pretty well with the rabbinic practice of Sod, although obviously in in the Christian uh, framework, uh, the revelations that develop from the text will be slightly different. Well, so that's a very brief run through, something that needs a much longer discussion. In any case, my point is not really to go into horrendous detail about hermeneutical theory and approaches, but rather to simply point out that part of getting past the obvious and the overly familiar involves getting a few more tools into your hermeneutical toolbox. Um, And maybe these tools are not tools you're overly familiar with. As always, uh, my interpretation is rooted in pretty solid scholarship. I I can never get past um, being a scholar. I have to look at things deeply. But my intention here is not scholarly. I want to make the text come alive for you in the way that it has come alive for me. This is something I do for fun, and so I want to to make it fun for you and and deep and enriching and and life-giving. As for my preparation for the series... I have adopted a pretty simple aim, which is to tackle at least one insight per minute. And so I'm hoping this makes for a decent listening experience. I always hope that you come away from listening to anything I've said on this podcast feeling enriched in some sort of way. Of course, once the words leave my mouth, I have no control over what happens to them. I don't know what you you will make of what I say or what chords my words will or will not strike. But... As always, I'm really happy that you're here for the ride. There is a disclaimer I do want to make before we start as well. Throughout this series, I will be talking about Egypt and Israel, because they're in the story, obviously, but the trouble with those words right now is that they have a contemporary significance that may confuse how we interpret the, the words. So, for instance, if I side with... Israel against Egypt, which is what I'm going to do because that's what the story itself does, please do not think that this reflects what I think of Egypt and Israel right now, today, in 2018. As with any of the literal instances of things mentioned in this series, Israel and Egypt are in fact symbolic values and terms. I'm talking about what they mean in the story and for life in general, and not about politics today. i I know it probably didn't need to say that, but I think it's helpful to, to mention. Then one last thing before I start, I do have a Patreon account um, at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy, and if you do think what I'm doing is worthwhile, I'd really deeply appreciate your support. Um, I'm certainly hoping that this podcast will grow into more than it is, but it's it's impossible for me to do that without your help, so you can... Check out my Patreon page and and sort of some of the the goals that I have there. Uh, yeah, and and see if you want to help me out. Um, obviously, that none of this is for profit. Uh, it's just it's just a, a thing I'm doing, and I'm I'm glad to have you along. I do want to thank obviously those of you who do support me on Patreon. Um, Benjamin Gray, Andre, Brad, Leo, you guys are are deeply appreciated. Thank you so much. And now. Uh, hey, I think we should get started. So in Genesis 12, we read about how Abraham, the great patriarch of the Abrahamic religions, goes down into Egypt and then returns. This prefigures the journey that the nation of Israel is going to take, which in turn prefigures how Israel will be exiled in Babylon before returning to their homeland. So this idea of, in a way, departure and return keeps on coming back. And this journey is then mirrored in the story of Jesus in the book of Matthew uh, chapter 2. Jesus is still an infant at this point, and so he's very much at the mercy of Joseph and Mary. But he recapitulates this journey into Egypt before his return to Israel. So there's this movement from one stable state to another kind of lower state, and then the journey sort of is completed not without a struggle, of course. And if you need an image to go with this, think of the image of God turning Moses' shepherd's staff into a serpent before turning it back into a staff again. It's an image of what growth looks like for all of us. To grow, to individuate, we must descend before we can ascend. It's kind of counterintuitive. Growth is, is stepping down. It's the journey that is mapped out in the entire narrative of Scripture. It starts in Eden and then in a way descends into this kind of purgatory of human experience, and then ends up in the the heaven of the new Jerusalem, in a way. So what begins in a garden ends in a city. Everything in between is, in a sense, Egypt. The story of human beings struggling against their own enslavement to sin and death. The Exodus story starts by naming the children of Jacob. This may seem like an odd way to start a story, but it's done to highlight something pretty obvious. The children of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, were many. They were increasing. In the King James Version, it talks about how Israel waxed very mighty. So when God promised Abraham, a man with at least one foot in the grave, that he was going to be the father of a nation, his wife, also with one foot in the grave, laughed. Because it was a preposterous idea, and yet, the book of Exodus, simply by naming people and then stating that all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, the Exodus story is pointing out that God's preposterous promise was actually becoming reality. And of course, throughout history, people have been confronted with seemingly preposterous predictions. For instance, when Jules Verne suggested in 1865 that human beings would land on the moon, many thought he was being quaint and slightly idiotic and the moral of this is uh, and well at least part of it is that while the conditions of a certain thing may not be perfect right now at one point they just might be part of what i think this is getting at is also that the idea that in the exodus story that the enslaved people are first and foremost not just slaves but people of a promise they represent all future blessing and A movement away from the present state of denigrated being, and while it may look like all future blessing is in terrible jeopardy, we read that this wasn't really the case. We read that this was not the case. Somehow, miraculously, and against all odds, or maybe because of some strange force or energy always at work in the world, which is more likely, the oppressed slaves were not destroyed by the tyranny of Egypt. Under pressure, they thrived, albeit not always in the ways that really count. The lesson here is that goodness is ultimately a stronger force than evil. At least that's part of what I think the, 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 the introduction to Exodus is getting at. Even though evil is clearly a very powerful force, it does not get to have the last word. Being always triumphs against non-being, although much is going to be lost in this battle. Even if goodness can be temporarily suppressed or repressed, as it is in, in the story of Exodus in the, in the start, it will eventually have its way. Because evil is a parasite. It's a contingency feeding on the power of necessity. Goodness is a thing in itself. It is necessity itself. I will say more about that in a, in a moment. As the story goes, the Israelites had found a home in Egypt. So, obviously, you know that by now. Because of the wisdom of Joseph, which we read about in the book of Genesis, the Hebrews had been welcomed by Egypt. But Joseph's story should have been a warning. Joseph's own descent into his own private hell began when he was sold into slavery in Egypt, which implies that, in a sense, the default relationship between Egypt and the descendants of Abraham was one of oppressor against the oppressed. And the message of this, I think, is pretty simple. Beware of defaults. Egypt had only sided with Joseph because it had been beneficial to them. It was always, for them, a relationship of convenience. And so what started as the convenience of possessing Joseph's wisdom morphed into the convenience of keeping Joseph's people as slaves. A further idea here is that it is an error to presume too much on, upon anyone's hospitality. Or in a way, it's, it's, it's a problem to presume that the status quo is in itself good, <laughs> as, as I will say more, more on in a moment. In fact, in English, there is an awkwardly fine line between the word host and the word hostile. Hospitality easily turns into hostility, especially when the welcome has been overstayed. This is a bit like the story of um, Hansel and Gretel, uh, which is basically um, that this witch who first looks like this sort of uh, just really sweet old lady turns into this tyrant. So what first looks like a life of luxury and feasting in fact turns into a, a trap. In Exodus 1, verse 8, we read that a new king arose in Egypt who was ignorant of who Joseph was. Joseph had done all this good, but this new king came along who had no idea. And it's very interesting. Ignorance in the story of the Exodus is the primary weapon of Pharaoh. Ignorance is the primary weapon of the tyrant. Well, that and a kind of authoritative amnesia. It's a kind of memory loss backed by power. If the head honcho can't remember the truth, then in the minds of the followers of said head head honcho, the truth ceases to exist. Hey, I wonder what that's like. When you read through the book of Exodus, you find that ignorance, or just plain ignoring, an unwillingness to hear or to listen, is at the heart of all of Pharaoh's persecution policies. He enslaves because he doesn't know any better, in a way. And then he just plain refuses to know any better. What distinguishes Pharaoh in the Exodus story is his deafness, which is in stark contrast to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh is the one who sees, the one who listens and hears. He pays attention. So Yahweh points to the illumination of knowledge, the attunement of empathy, and the kind of openness to otherness that is embedded in the created order. In the contrast between Pharaoh's ignorance and God's knowing, we have a contrast between enslavement and true freedom. Everything escapes Pharaoh. (laughs) He's he's clueless, which is to say that Pharaoh doesn't take things on their own terms. This is a very significant problem um, in much of culture, people not taking things on their own terms. The result is that those things are trapped. I'm sure you know exactly how this feels. When others fail to understand you, you feel like their ignorance is your prison. But nothing escapes the God of Israel, which is precisely what allows those things, those people, to be free. Isn't that interesting? God's knowing is the source of their freedom, just as our truly knowing and understanding others might be the source of their freedom. Yahweh knows things as they are, since he is the one who calls those things into existence. And his calling things into existence means that he wants things to be fully themselves. Egypt, then, from a literary point of view, represents anything and everything that enslaves. God, on the other hand, stands for liberty. Again, Egypt is not a literal place here in this reading, but a vice or the denigration of being God is love, the purest and strongest affirmation of being. And I think this makes sense, because to truly affirm things as they are, they have to be allowed to be what they are. So I mentioned that I would talk a little bit about vice being parasitic. Here is a good moment to do that. The fact that Pharaoh feels that he needs to build his nation on the backs of slaves is a reminder that vice is always parasitic. Even if something looks like virtue and yet operates in a similarly parasitic way, well, then that so-called virtue is probably a vice too. A great deal of so-called ethics is what I would call revenge ethics. It's a very odd thing to, to call it because it's basically a contradiction in terms. But it's what happens when um, seeming virtue rests on the backs of slaves in a way. It it raises itself up. People raise themselves up as being virtuous by denigrating others. You see this in a lot of contemporary debates where compassion is weaponized. Um, So compassion doesn't function as out of a love for the weak, but out of a hatred for the strong. And that's a very different kind of motivation. In the end, the fact that Pharaoh relies on slaves is only a testament to the strength of the slaves. It doesn't testify to Egypt's strength at all. All that apparent strength is really just insecurity hiding Behind the mask of a bully. On this reading, Pharaoh is a symbol of weakness masquerading as strength. A kind of demon wearing the mask of a god. Of course, in Egypt, the Pharaoh was regarded as a god, which is as good a warning as anything. I think even today, uh, people are very prone to deifying celebrities or politicians, uh, which is... I suppose it's part of a natural hu- human impulse, this need to worship, but it is dangerous. If we make absolute what should be relative, we're going to run into some serious trouble. And that is exactly what happens in, obviously, the case of Joseph's people. It's really fascinating to notice that in Egyptian culture, especially in the so-called Heliopolis cult, um, Helio meaning the sun, obviously, the pharaoh was the incarnation of the so-called ma'at of the creator god Ra. That word ma'at meant a few things. It meant truth, order, rightness, and justice. Ra was the first king, and the pharaoh would have been regarded as a kind of embodiment of his spiritual, creative energy. In other words, his ma'at. So there was this mantra that was spoken about Ra, which said this, he put order... Ma'at in the place of chaos. Like Ra, Pharaoh was thought to keep chaos at bay. And when the Pharaoh Akhenaten came into power, for instance, he was referred to as the one who put Ma'at in the place of falsehood. What the Exodus story highlights is that this so-called order, this Ma'at that the Egyptians held onto, was not really the right kind of order. People, of course, naturally crave order. We all do. We need it. I think we're built to want chaos to go away. But in our haste to have order or to make sense of the world in a particular kind of way, we may all too quickly side with the kind of order that will actually just put us in chains. Because of this belief that Pharaoh was the incarnation of Ma'at, Pharaoh can be taken as a kind of symbol of pure repetition. uh, in a way, idolatrous repetition. It's often quite difficult, perhaps even impossible, to recognize the individual characteristics of the pharaohs from historical artifacts. I find that just such an interesting thing. For example, when Ramses III built his tomb, he repeated the names of the cities that Ramses II had conquered, and Ramses Third gave his children the same names that Ramses II had given to his children, and so on. So the pharaoh stood for an impersonal pattern, and not for a personal mode of being, a kind of distinctive, individual, recognized uh, mode of being. And this idea of pure repetition is also found in Egyptian art, of course, which is highly reliant on conventions. It was an era during which art was an extension of the bureaucracy and not a challenge to it. And I suppose uh, we shouldn't be so quick to judge, um, because we all have habits, they're not necessarily <laughs> terrible things, but some of us have bad habits, right? And we all know how difficult it is to break those habits, to actually develop good, healthy habits and new ways of living. And I think part of uh, the symbolism of exodus is is exactly that this: there's one way of living that needs to be broken so that another way of living can actually happen. The relevance of this idea of pure repetition spills over into how time was understood in the ancient world. In many ancient cultures, time was cyclical, not linear or chronological. So time itself was about duplication. This was very true in ancient Egypt, so ma'at or order was more like a kind of blind repetition of the status quo. In fact, There are really, really good historical reasons to believe that chronological time was instituted for the first time in human history by the Jewish people, starting with Abraham. For this reason, Jews regard time as a sacred thing, and I think that's something that we would all do really well to reclaim. The fact that Abraham departed from his home without repeating the culture of his father shows a radical idea. In fact, as legend has it, he destroyed the idols of his father. So he, in a way, got into the clockwork of his peoples and, and wrecked everything. <laughs> but the radical idea is this. It's, it's the idea that it is possible to step away from the status quo, to step away from the ideological clockwork of, of your immediate context. And it means that you can step away from where you are right now. But the stepping away is not just about changing places. It's about a movement in time, a movement towards something better and holier. Um, I'll have to talk about the idea of holiness in in a later podcast. This ancient Jewish idea also indicates that when the order of things isn't the right kind of order, it's actually essential to step beyond it. This, of course, is precisely what Moses and his people end up doing. Oh yeah, Moses, we haven't really talked about how he fits into all this, but you're going to have to wait until the next episode for more detail on that from me. So please join me for that. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Until next time. Cheers.